Jerry Brady and I met over the coronavirus crisis, and I have always been interested in the economic impact of the crisis and other things that are going on. So he is joining me today to go over some of these major issues. So I'd like to introduce Jerry Brady. Tell the folks where you're from and what your background is. Um, Nice to be here, Warner. My background's very diverse. I'm a doctor of medicine originally practiced clinical medicine at the front line for 30 years on and off. But while I was doing that, I was involved in some business ventures. I got bored with medicine fairly quickly. And I started a company which became one of the biggest biotech companies in Australia. It was a company specializing in the genetic engineering of microorganisms. We had large-scale fermentation plant growing these organisms. We manufactured restriction enzymes, which are used in genetic engineering. And that company became an anti-cancer therapeutics company, specializing in anti-angiogenesis research. And it became quite a large company. I was the founder of that company, and uh, but I got bored with that. It went a bit bigger. I went back to practice medicine. And then by happenstance, I started another company, which was the first company to map the internet, IP address to geographic location. This was back in the 1990s and around the year 2000. Prior to that, of course, nobody knew where anybody was on the internet. It was anonymous geographically, but we rendered it a geographic phenomenon. And then after that, I became very disenchanted with medicine. In 2007, I could see the totalitarian government controls coming in, being put into place. And I decided I didn't want to continue with that anymore. And I left medicine. I retired from medicine. That's 15 years ago now. And I lived in Europe quite a bit, backwards and forwards between Australia and Europe. I'm an Australian, you may have gathered. And then I became very focused on the world of finance and economics and investments in particular and financial markets. And I was able to devote all of my time there, except for finding good red wine to drink and good meals. I devoted the last, the next 15 years of my life to researching this whole area. Then I started a website, which is basically a newspaper site on the urging of a think tank in Seattle. And then that has grown, write a weekly editorial for that newspaper. It's called Boom Finance and Economics. There's also a blog site, a WordPress site, where all of my editorials are available. And that that is aimed at the major central banks of the world, the chief economists of those central banks, the deputy economists, senior fund managers, professors of finance and economics. So I'm very practical. I'm very macro-orientated. But of course, I'm very much involved in the whole COVID phenomenon. I regard this as possibly the greatest crime in the history of the planet. So let's get into it a little bit. One of the things that I've seen recently is that China is having problems. They have this Evergrande default, which is a real estate company. I don't know all the details about it, but that seems to be imploding. And then the other thing that I've seen about China is we have some predictions of extreme population loss there in the next 20 or 30 years because of the aging of the population. So I know those are two big issues, but in the United States, at least, we see the Chinese behemoth as this major competitor, and it just seems like this major competitor has some real weaknesses. It's like a Jenga game where you pull one of these little pieces of wood out, it's going to come tumbling down. They run their economy like a Swiss clock. It's really well run. They know what they're doing. It's smart. They understand money. They understand the theory of money. 
They understand that money is water for the garden, the economic garden. At the moment, they're transitioning a little bit. They're basically, they're incentivizing the accumulation of wealth inside their economy. That is what's happening. But the Chinese economy is a pretense. It's a, it pretends to be a capitalist economy with a communist power structure, but it really is a command and control economy. They control everything inside that economy. If you are wealthy in mainland China, you are only wealthy until the state wants your wealth, and then you're no longer wealthy. Everything is essentially owned by the state, including all of the banks. It mimics, it, it presents itself as being private and mimics privacy in, that, in ownership. But the reality is when push comes to shove, that's not really true. So you've got to look at all these elements, the, the mimicry of private enterprise, the centralized state control, the, the role of wealth and both in, when they incentivize it, when they disincentivize it, and whether that wealth is real or not. All of these elements are important. China is actually, I think, something that America can learn a lot from because the Chinese understand money and they understand it really well. It sounds crazy, doesn't it? A communist world understands the role of money, but they know what happened in the USSR and they know why the USSR failed because the USSR attempted to control money way too centrally. They had no banking sector creation of money in the USSR and ultimately this led to lack of productivity and failure of the whole communist experiment. The Chinese worked out that was not the road that was going to lead to success. So they created this private part of their banking world and private part of their real economy, and they run them in a dual system. But sitting on top of that is, is a control mechanism. The Evergrande thing is not a big deal. If you realise that all of the property is ultimately owned by the state, then so what if a real estate developer goes broken? And the population is important because the population of China has been very much affected by the one-child policy. And they have got a shortage of labour because of the one-child policy. And that is something they're very concerned about, which is why they've launched the Belt and Road strategy. But the population also has another big problem, and that is its working age group is in decline. And according to projections that I've seen, and I think they're very accurate, that working age population will continue to decline right through this century. So another 70 years of working age population decline. So they know this and they've realised that if your working age population is in decline, then your ability to create money in the form of credit, which is bank loans, is in decline. And therefore, they've been the first to adopt a digital currency. It's not really, it's a digital cash. It's all about electronic cash. So they've been the first to do that. They've got the EU on, they put through various regional experiments. They followed all the suggestions that I suggested to them in my editorials, and they realized this is great. We can increase the velocity of money with an electronic cash system. But they realize they've got to boost cash because if your economy is reliant on credit creation and your working age population is in decline, then your credit creation potential is in decline. The only way to get your money supply growing or back up to normal is to grow the cash. This is critical when your working age population is in decline because of the decrease in credit creation. Now, this is exactly what is happening in America and in all the other advanced economies of the world as well. But we're not increasing our cash component. Our cash component is at 2% of our money supply. So we have a big economic problem that cannot be solved until we follow China and create a much bigger volume of cash in circulation. I want to follow up on the cash. It sounds to me like what you're saying is 
They're simply making the money, coining the money, and then distributing that to the population so that there's a continued expense and expenditure in the economy. What it sounds like to me is essentially what we have the ability to do in our constitution, supposedly, is simply coin money. Is that, have I got that correct? America must desperately begin the expansion of its cash component in its money supply. The cash is issued not by a central bank, it should be issued by the treasury. It is the people's money, okay? So cash is the people's money, but actually it's still a debt because cash is in in essence a loan to the people from the sovereign, but the sovereign is responding to demand for the cash. So the people demand cash, the sovereign supplies the cash. That is what happens in a feudalistic society, and it's what happens in a complex society. If we increase our demand for cash, the sovereign has to produce the cash to meet the demand. We should be out on the streets marching up and down demanding that the Treasury Department issue more cash into the economy. Now, people will say, okay, that's good, but if you need to increase it that much, maybe you can do it electronically. And I agree. I think we should be working on electronic cash issued by the Treasury Departments of the world and infusing that into our economies to speed the velocity of money. So this is what I think we desperately need to do in all of the advanced economies. Otherwise, we're just going to continue on with more and more economic problems. Think about it this way. Someone who's a billionaire in America or in my country for Australia, most often just won a lottery. Okay, They started a company. The company managed to survive through the early years and then Somehow it managed to strike gold in making some software or providing some service or some product. And bingo, the chap who started it suddenly wins lottery and becomes a billionaire. They didn't work any harder than the man who collects the rubbish. They were just lucky. It was all luck. So let's not get too carried away with this idea that handing money to people is anti-capitalistic. It is actually how the capitalist system operates. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you've, got to get mo- you've got to get money into the garden for the plants to grow. Most of the money, of course, is created as, as credit, as a bank loan, a, a, in its initial you know, manifestation. And, but that's limited if you're, as I say, if your working age population is in decline. You've got a problem with creation of money. But you've really got no choice. You've got to create cash. Now, either the government can spend the cash into the economy just through its expenditure program, or it can give it away as a lottery. In the Chinese experiments, they gave them the electronic cash away as a lottery. You entered your name, and if you, on a certain date, you checked your phone, and if you had $200 suddenly appeared, you won the lottery. I think some people would argue with the, the unemployment system and the COVID money system that occurred in the United States anyway, that really disincentivized work. And right now, you can see a problem with labor and restaurants in all kinds of areas, salespeople, mechanics, construction. We have a real shortage of labor almost everywhere you look. So how would you respond to that criticism of that, that this disincentivizes people to go work hard? I think the best way for expansion of the cash component of an economy is for the government to expend its expenditure via cash. That's the best way, because the government is the biggest spender. You've got a government spending many billions of dollars. What if they just started meeting all those invoices with cash? You could infuse the economy straight away with huge amounts of cash. Now, it would wind up on the balance sheet of banks, right? And if there was 
if you then incentivized the use of cash in some way, it would begin to be circulated inside the real economy. So I think this is all about government policy. The government has to make up their mind to expand cash as a, in terms of volume, and then it has to expend it as cash. When I was a young boy in the 1950s, I can remember that cash was very frequently used. All the companies paid all their employees with cash in a little envelope. Yeah. I used to help my father fill all the envelopes. He had a business and I used to, he needed some help, so he'd get me down there to you put, count the money, put it in, double check, triple check. You would know all this happened in the 1950s and early 1960s. We've forgotten that that happened, but it did. So cash can be infused into the society either through employers doing it or through the government doing it. We have a lot of old industrial buildings in Akron. We had our boom 100-some years ago. Yeah. Going to any of those old factories, including the Goodyear plant, the Firestone plant, the little shops and plants around that supported that industry, they always have in those buildings these incredible monster safes. So you could see how that was working. So when you said that, I was getting a kick out of that. The uh, yeah, What an anecdote. That is just brilliant. Once you start talking to me, you'll discover that governments are not using cash is a major issue. And most of our economic problems are caused by governments who don't understand money at all. And they don't get good advice about money either. I'm hearing some arguments in my head back and forth. Okay, so you pay people cash and you get that out into the economy. And I can look around my city, for example, and I'm like, there's all kinds of work that needs to be done. All kinds of work. If you want to work any given day, you can make 20 yep. bucks an hour cleaning up the streets, cleaning up the trash. There's a yep. million things you could be doing. And I always thought that would be a good use of people's time. And it yep. would be have a positive incentive and not have some of the mal incentives with it. If if at least you had to come work for that cash, but here it's available. But I agree. I don't think people should be given money for just sitting on their backside right. unless they're disabled or sick or elderly. But we could be employing people. We've got to have real energy and inventiveness in employing people for cash. This would be a fantastic idea in your area. It would, and when they spend cash. I tell you, it increases the velocity of money because sure. cash is immediate. It's there. They'll go and spend it. And your economy will rapidly get better. And the whole economy will benefit from this. One initiative, you can change your whole economy. I was in Argentina. We lived there for a month, about probably eight years ago. And they had a big sign at the supermarkets. The big sign was 10% discount on your bill if you pay with a card and not with cash. The worst thing you can do is incentivize cards versus cash in an economy like Argentina, but that's what they were doing. All you have to do here is do the same. You have you somehow, by government decree or some there's some way you have to work out how to incentivize the supermarkets to give a 10% discount for cash. And bingo, everybody will turn up with cash. And it, so you get food being bought for cash. You get labor being bought for cash. You can do this and you can start in a little economy and away you go. And when your little economy re reignites, people will notice. When you have paper money, it's private. Whatever you're buying, good or bad, it's at least it's private. The government is not tracking it. And I think people are very concerned about the trackability of their expenses. Yes, I think this is a, a distraction because credit money is tracked. All of our current digital money has been digital since 1962 when computer ledgers were in, brought into the banking system. 
So we've had digital money since 1962. Virtually all of our money is digital. So this idea that digital money is a new phenomenon is false. It, all of our money pretty much is digital. We have 2% of, of physical cash, 98% digital. So, And we already have restrictions on credit. If you're down on your luck and you walk into a bank and you say, oh, I want to borrow a million dollars to buy a home, they'll say, well, you haven't got any income. Yeah, but I want to borrow a million dollars. And you just can't get it. The credit system isn't a free, open, free-for-all. It is limited. It is structured. There are controls over credit. Whether you like it or not, they're there. And if you want a higher paid job, you've got to jump through certain loops. You've got to go to this university, get this degree, have get this job, that job, and you'll get a higher pay scale. There's already these social controls in place. They're just not obvious. I have a close friend in China, and they say, look, in China, the credit control systems, which they all rant about as being terrible, he tells us, he said, look, it's no big deal. They want you to have a high credit rating. So if your credit rating goes down, they actually give you all sorts of incentives to get it back up again. He said, so he said, look, it's not all that difficult to get your credit score up. He said, it's quite easy. You might have to just join a charity and devote half a day to a charity. And he said, your credit rating explodes. He said, it's not as onerous as it sounds. But I you, he's about, a great. I worry about dissidents. I'm a total opponent of totalitarianism, which is why I'm very hard working against the whole COVID narrative, because this is our threat, is totalitarianism. Oh no, we've got to do all of this in a, a civil democratic system, which has a trusted and viable justice system. Then we can have a better society. I'm not suggesting totalitarianism, but I just think that it's overblown, this idea of social credit. <laughs> Let's spin the world a little bit and switch over to Europe and Ukraine. Yeah. I'm hearing some news reports that Germany may be a little bit cold for people this winter. And I cannot believe in an advanced economy, they're not going to have energy to heat their people's homes. Basically, Europe is led by a bunch of, I'll call them, I'll be polite, I'll call them idiots. What the hell are they doing? They're destroying their own economies. They're pretending that Russia is some great military threat to them when it isn't. And you've got to inspect the personalities of who is doing this. I don't want to get into that. It gets fairly dystopian, but Europe is caught in a very terrible situation. I'm very concerned about the European economy. I think they're heading into a very bad recession. Sorry if you're American audience, but the fact is the US dollar benefits from global uncertainty and global unrest. Let's call it that. Some people would say it benefits from global disruption. So cynics of the world, which you may be one or may not be, but the cynics will say American dollar benefits from this. Therefore, disruption is the policy foreign policy of America. But US dollar has been going up strongly now since the Ukrainian debacle began, and it just keeps going up. In fact, it started going up strongly in mid-June last year. So the US dollar is benefiting from all of this uncertainty and disruption. And as the US dollar rises, CPI inflation inside the US is going down. It, it pushes inflation down inside the US because the US can literally buy whatever it wants from the world, from this rising reserve currency. So there's there are these, let's call them dystopian elements to this whole disruption feeding US dollar strength. And that's not talked about much. There's also, um, I think, a dystopian element to the personalities who are in charge of Europe. When you think of the Russian economy, I don't know if you've ever been there, they can feed themselves without any difficulty. They have abundant energy. So they're a powerhouse and geopolitically because of that, 
and they have very strong and capable military as well. And anyone taking on Russia is really foolish. It would be better off being a friend of Russia than an enemy of Russia. So I think Europe should patch up this the disagreement and they should work towards peace rather than war. And uh, Russia is going to survive it because of all the food, the water and the energy it's got. It, it just wants to live in peace by itself. This idea that it wants to expand and recreate the USSR, I really can't see some strong evidence of that. So I, I really feel all of this is a big mistake by Europe. Back in about 93, there was a general understanding that NATO would not expand which we seem to have broken that promise. The Russians themselves, at some point, clearly wanted to be more integrated with Western Europe and with the United States. And I never understood why, if an opening like that occurred, why we wouldn't have been very interested in that. And we're not talking Yeltsin. We're talking Putin came with that plan. Yeah. And it sounds like he got absolutely rejected. And I see the major broken promise as the West. We broke the promise. I agree. I'm, I'm a great admirer of Ronald Reagan. I think he was outstanding as president. And I think he's the only U.S. president I really admire. And he could see that the future. And he tried to break down the USSR, which was a real problem for the world. And he achieved that. This endless expansion of NATO is terrible. The leadership in NATO, I believe personally, is not good. If you look at what the cynics say, the cynics I referred to before, and they say US foreign policy is a policy of disruption, then that, if you start looking at that argument, then everything makes sense. We need good leadership. We need great leaders and good leadership. And I'm very disappointed in the Western political class now in all of our nations I think they're selected for incompetence and lack of ability. If you wanted to select a group of people to, to really destroy the economy of Europe, that's the list you draw up. Then the US's situation, Canada, Australia is a complete mess now politically. One of the issues with the United States is, and we've already dealt with this a little bit, is that the Federal Reserve is really changing course. And that's A, interest rates are rising. The amount of assets that the Fed is holding, I think they have been at about $8 trillion, And they are trying to disentangle that to the tune of about $95 billion a month. What is the impact of that going to be on the United States? Okay, great question. Firstly, US dollar going up is disinflationary inside America. So despite what we just said before, this is helping the US economy as the US dollar rises because if inflation, if CPI inflation is a threat, that will help. Commodities. Commodity prices in US dollars inside the US economy are falling. Lots of commodities. In my boom editorial of this week, I put a big list this long of all the commodities going down in America. And they include oil, they include lumber, sugar, wheat, corn. I put a big list up and they're all falling. They're in strong downtrends. So this disinflationary aspect of commodities falling and the US dollar rising is a good thing. And then you get on to, you then went on to the Fed and the Fed's balance sheet. Now, to understand central bank balance sheets, you have to grasp the issuance of bonds as a debt instrument versus a bank loan as a debt instrument. They're very different phenomena. The Chinese economy doesn't issue anywhere near as many bonds as the American economy. They're smart. The reason is this. When you issue a bond, you're not creating any fresh new money. You're simply appealing to investors to 
invest in the security that you're, you've created, whether that is a corporate bond or a municipal bond or a sovereign a treasury bond. There's no extra increase in your money supply coming from bond issue. It's really amazing to watch the uh, bank loans versus bond issuance between America and China. So America issues way too many bonds, both in a sovereign sense, in corporate sense, municipal sense. It would benefit greatly if instead of borrowing from the investment community, it borrowed from the banks, right? If it went to banks for bank loans, then fresh new money is created. So it's another way of boosting the money supply and improving the whole bit, the whole well-being of your economy. Bonds don't create new money. They just take money off investors and spend it into the economy. I'm not saying bonds are bad, but I think the balance in America is definitely out of whack. And again, we I would be encouraging the central government to borrow off banks rather than issue bonds into the investment community. Now, they don't have to switch from one, one system to another. They just have to start the mix moving towards that. The Federal Reserve should think about this. I actually promote this idea in my editorials a lot. I call it quantitative boosting. Okay. So there's a, you would all have heard of quantitative easing, but my plan is quantitative boosting. And in quantitative boosting, the government borrows from the banking sector rather than issues bonds. And there has to be a pre-agreement in this borrowing between the central bank, the commercial banks and the government that pre-agreement could be reached very quickly around a cup of coffee and the government would then switch over to boosting the money supply through through bank loans rather than the rather than issuing bonds from getting that money from the investment community but eventually all this will have to come there'll have to be less reliance upon bond issuance in the american economy and more reliance on bank loans and that will benefit the banks and there has to be the issuance of cash. Who benefits from the current structure the most? Oh, I think the banking sector is the answer to that. And the people who win the billionaire lottery or the multi-million dollar lottery, they benefit because they win the lottery. The bankers benefit, the banking sector benefits, the people who win the lottery benefit. But there's an awful lot of people who don't benefit anymore. In America, you've got a huge underclass and you've got people living on the street. And it's terrible. We see the photographs and we can't believe what's going on. You've got a very big lower class who can never, ever achieve anything financially in the system. That's, a, that's like a great lead weight in the American economy. So we've got to change all of that. And we can change it fairly easily, I think, in terms of these discussion about the role of cash okay, and funding your government by bank loans. And you don't have to do it dramatically. I just think something has to be done where if anybody wants to work, they can go get work and go to work and at least support their family. And we shouldn't have, we should not have homeless. And if you're homeless, we've shown how expensive it is to have one homeless person in terms of the emergency services. Absolutely. I would love to, I'd love to help you with your experiment in Akron, Ohio. We'll start (laughs) Yep, we'll get some. We'll fill those big safes in those big with cash. <laughs> we start paying people if they want to come and do a day's work. They'll be paid with a, a little, a little brown envelope, or the they used to get the little. Yeah, <laughs> pay them in the cash, give them the envelope, and we just get going. We can start that experiment tomorrow in Akron, Ohio, if you know the people who who can get it going, and we just. If we can get some of these lottery winning billionaires to provide some cash, where we go, we, and then we can mon- we can actually monitor the velocity of money in this small community. We just start one one country town, 
We don't need to start in New York City. And away right. we go. Akron's a nice community to do it in because it's 200,000 people. So we have all the problems, but they're not like yeah. overwhelming. We know where the homeless live. We know where they are. We could actually reach out to them and say, hey, we have a jobs program. If you want to come make yeah. 100, 200 bucks, you can do this fairly quickly. Work five hours today and you'll get 100 bucks. And so yeah. that would, it would be easy to implement yeah. here. Yeah. And when they go to the supermarket, there is a discount for cash. So they get 5% or 10% off if you pay in cash. You just put all this stuff in play and it all just starts working. So I would be very keen to help you if you wanted. We can <laughs> find. We're in a little bit of a political transition here. I get along pretty well with the city and know pretty much everybody here. So we could ramp something up like that pretty quickly, I believe. There's probably one or two lottery winners in your city. There might be uh, someone who did win the lottery, bought something, and then suddenly they're worth half a billion or something. We get those people involved. We say, look, you've won the lottery. How about just being part of this experiment and let's see what happens. And we just build it so that it becomes self-sustaining. I'd be very keen to do that. You're a man of great vision. I'm a man of small vision, street level <laughs> vision. That's what I am. <laughs> but I, I do see yeah. what you see, the lottery winners. I can tell you, even in my profession, we have one of the most skewed professions of all the professions. We have a few at the very top who've just hit it in a massive way. And then we have a lot that are there. You're able to make a good living as a lawyer, but it's just a middle-class living for many lawyers. And then the pandemic hurt all of us, especially the small practitioners and small firms, because the cases just went away for a while. If I hadn't kept the firm together, we could not have responded to the crisis. But it was it was a gamble. I didn't expect yeah. to be gambling as much. I'm 60 years old, Jerry. I didn't expect yeah. to be laying it on the line to keep my 10 employees going. On this point, what's happened in the last two years, I think I'm very positive about the future economically because they've admitted that the CDC has been a disaster. Right. The head of the CDC has come out and said they did everything wrong. What more can you ask for? We've got the head of the NIH, our Mr. Fauci, leaving. They're the two biggest clouds that have been holding America in its grip for the last two and a half years and disincentivizing everybody to even go to work, let alone try and prove themselves. Those two things are gone. If we can get peace in the Ukraine, that will be gone. And if the inflation comes down, I think all of these things are happening. I'm very positive. I think if we have this discussion in 12 months' time, I think things will look a lot brighter. I agree with you about a lot of that. And the other thing that I saw happen. I have made so many great connections just because of all the people who joined the fight. And the fight itself has defined a group of people who I think are leaders that I think will emerge as we come out into this politically. Because who am I going to turn to for medical advice? Who is somebody going to turn to for legal advice? Who's Who are you going to turn to for economic advice? You're going to turn to the dissidents in this crisis, the ones who said, no way, you can't lock down. This thing is treatable, that you're lying to our publics. We know now who can see through it, has some vision to see through it. And I think it's important to identify those communities of people that didn't simply didn't exist before now. So I, I, I'm amazed by the crowdsourced intelligence that we have developed at all levels of our societies. And it's worldwide, it's connected, it's very heartening. I agree totally, I've had the same experience. But right at the core of all of this is the realisation that we have to reject totalitarianism. 
we have to reject external control from the the unelected appointed people in an organization such as the world health organization the imf the world bank these organizations are not working for our benefit they're working for someone else's benefit they seek control external control over our lives we've got to reject totalitarianism we've got to reject these unappointed these appointed and non-elected people we have to come out with firm ideas about what it means to be non-totalitarian i prefer to talk about that than freedom because freedom is a lot more complicated but just to say we're against totalitarianism that's i think that's really important these transhumanists who meet in a small village in switzerland once a year in their private jets we've got to plainly state our opposition to what they are see what they see as the future we have to plainly state our opposition and when we form our group we're not going to meet be able to meet in a little village in switzerland we'll have millions upon millions of people in our group and as I'm very much involved in forming that group of millions upon millions of people but through their non-profit organizations i want to form a, a whole network of non-profit organizations and get millions of people linked through these organizations to counter totalitarianism to counter the people in the little village in switzerland okay to counter the unelected officials appointed officials in these non-representative organizations that are not even i don't think even legal entities such as the who imf world bank that's my speech for the day <laughs> and, and i would how does, does that ring true to you it does, does. Ring true to you? i yeah. describe it a little differently we need to push power out to the edges yeah push power and decision making out to the edges and then that network is global but it's all out here instead of emanating from the center and all that communication can be helpful can be workable but power is pushed out to the edges and it's pushed down to a level in our societies where the big decisions are actually being made by neighbors and it's not all being controlled centrally. And we discovered that in our litigation. You've heard me talk about this plenty of times. Everything seemed to be coming from the center, all the decision making and the patterns started to show up where the education systems were controlled centrally, healthcare systems centrally. And we didn't even know some of these structures that we discovered in the litigation were out there. Yep. I was already aware of the central versus edge issues and concerned about them, but it was it's way worse than I thought. One last thing, and this kind of goes to the, this is the bad fact that's coming up, but I, I just want to get your impression and this will be our last topic. The thing that I'm concerned about, it does seem like there has been rising death rates and falling birth rates in any country that had widespread shots these COVID injections. You know what word I'm trying to avoid there. And I'm very concerned about it. So we have had a lot of losses in the practice, such as three persons with cerebral hemorrhages. I never had a cerebral hemorrhage in the entire time I've been in practice from my clients that I knew of. Now I know of three. Lots and lots of cancers that I know of in the practice now. It's very concerning to me what's happening. And we have the actuaries telling us that the working age people have had a 40% increase in, in death rates, just doing the quick math on that's two, 300,000 additional deaths in working age people in the United States. So what's the impact of that increased death? And then also the 20% or so drop in birth rates. Let's start with just the actual numbers. I know the numbers. So 
there's a website you can go to called usmortality.com. It's fantastic. It's run by a man who I have helped a little bit, and he produces wonderful graphs. It will show you that the cumulative excess deaths of those that are from all causes that are above what you'd expect from the five-year average. So they've got an average which they, they produce a zero line. Right. And then if you've got deaths above that zero line, your deaths will go above and you'll form a graph going up like this. In, a, in the United States for the last two years, 2020 and 2021, you've had approximately a million excess deaths. Now, and we're still on track this year to the same number. The deaths for this year are tracking along the same line. So we're going to probably have another... 500,000 this year. So by the end of this year, I'm expecting 1.5 million deaths above what we should have had in terms of the expected average. Now, some people will say, oh, that's COVID killing all those people. I'm sorry, there's no proof for that. There's no proof at all because we are not doing sufficient autopsies. We do not know what these people are really dying from. And we can say, oh, they died from COVID because they've got a positive PCR test. And I'm sorry, that's not true. The CDC has told us that 94% of deaths attributed to COVID are not caused by COVID. They're caused by comorbid conditions. So we do not know what these people are dying from. We had a city in America wiped out to the tune of 1.5 million deaths. I think there'd be an inquiry. I think someone might get a little concerned as to who dropped that bomb. Our nations are under attack. I don't think there's any doubt. And the deaths are just the beginning of the iceberg. But the deaths are happening all over the world. In my country, Australia, we're on track to, it's a much smaller population, but we're on track to 30,000 excess deaths this year. And we're getting excess deaths in summertime. You should not see excess deaths in summer. So we're on track to 30,000 excess deaths and maybe 40,000. We don't know what they're dying from. We really don't know. On the mainstream media, they will proudly tell you that these are COVID deaths, but that's not true. We don't have the proof of this at all. So we need to know what are these people dying from. We've got excess deaths. Europe is the same. Europe has had almost a million excess deaths in the last two years as well, and they're on track this year again for a similar number of probably 400,000 excess deaths in Europe this year on track. If we look at Europe plus the United States, let's say there are 2 million excess deaths above the expected average from all causes in the last two years. And then let's say that the US and Europe represents 10% of the population of the planet. Then we could be looking at 20 million excess deaths. We just don't know. So if we've got 10 or 20 million deaths and we don't know, we need to find out. And then we've got disabilities and illnesses, as you say, Everybody now knows someone who's had myocarditis. I practiced medicine for 30 years in a very busy clinical setting. I only practiced medicine with adults. I was particularly interested in heart disease. I want you to guess how many patients I saw in myocarditis for 30 years. I guess it is. Oh, one. One. I guess a couple. One. Okay, yeah. One. Yeah. And every G, every GP I talk to with 30 years of medical experience, I ask them the question. I say, how many myocarditis patients did you see before all this started? They all say zero. Yeah. Oh, geez. I was blessed with, I was blessed with one. Oh, geez. Myocarditis, more often than not, is non-symptomatic. You don't know people have got it till they suddenly drop dead. What are we seeing? We're seeing athletes drop dead. Yeah. They're out playing professional 
football in, in Germany, and they're just dropping dead. You've seen all these. The world's champion mountain biker just dropped. He just didn't wake up. So myocarditis is just everywhere. Now, what's happened? We've had a virus. It is a virus, but it's, the origin of it is very questionable. And we've had these injectables. It gets worse, though. It gets worse. We are now worried about the increase of cancers, the increase of more heart disease problems, the increase of neurological brain diseases is worrying us. I saw a video yesterday of a neurologist in a city in America saying that she is overwhelmed with new cases of neurological disease, Parkinson's disease, uh, myelitis. She's seeing them in such large numbers. She said it, she describes it as a tsunami of neurodegenerative disease. Now we know the we know how these are mediated, and we're pretty sure we know what's causing it. That's under the surface. We've got all this disablement occurring in all these disease factors, as well as deaths. The Australian Bureau of Statistics actually keeps statistics on the deaths from cancer, okay, and dementia, heart disease, the big causes. We've had a big increase in deaths from dementia in the last six months, and we've had a big increase in cancers. We're beginning to see the dementia first up and the extra cancers happening. We are ultimately going to see, I think, more heart disease. We're going to see autoimmune diseases just steadily accumulating over time. This is a huge problem for our society. I'm very worried. And what I'm spending a lot of my time on now is developing the best possible treatments for these damaged people. If you look at the statistic of the VAERS data, if we look at that in a number of deaths for Europe, UK and America, from my memory, I'm just quoting this off my memory, I think it's about 79,000 deaths registered in those official data banks, but they are voluntary data banks. They are uh, voluntary reports, and the under-reporting rate is thought to be somewhere between tenfold or 100-fold, with most people saying it's probably 20 or 40-fold in the middle. If we've got 79,000 deaths, we can multiply that by a factor of at least 10, maybe 40, maybe 100. Let's round it out to a million, and a 100-fold would be a much big, bigger number again. So we could have huge numbers of deaths that are not being kept in those statistics. And the disabilities, we could have, I forget the total number of reports, but I think it's of the order of, 3 million reports of adverse events. We multiply that by 100. We could have 300 million people damaged. We see the disabilities in the United States because they're filing for Social Security disability. And we had an excess 1 million last year filing for Social Security disability in the United States. We have a lot of people filing every year in this country, but an extra million, yeah. that's, a, that's about a 50, 60% increase in filings in disability yeah. in the United yeah. States. And it's incredibly costly to our country to lose them from the yeah. workforce and then pay them for the rest of their lives for their disability. Yeah. So the costs, yeah. are, the costs are mounting. And I think the real true disability is probably double that. It's just yeah. these million managed to get filed and get their disability granted. There's a lot of people in the process that aren't getting it granted. They're rejected. They have to go through a whole process. So that's part of what I'm seeing here. The other thing that I'm seeing here is 
the numbers of people dying at home. It is not explicable anymore why the numbers dying at home are so great. And it's because it's sudden death. There is no gradual death. It's boom, they're out, cold, dead. And then the yeah. other thing that I'm seeing here that I just keep hearing over and over is so-and-so just got diagnosed with fourth stage X. And in the past, you, you would have some symptoms. You'd go in, you'd be in first or second or whatever, but they'd catch something. And all of a sudden yeah. they're in fourth stage and they're dead in a couple of months. So they're expiring. They're getting the cancer diagnosed. It's at an advanced stage and they're dying within months. It's very quick. I'm just astounded. And when you think of when you think of that, if you take it across the whole nation, it's overwhelming your healthcare system, oh, sure. overwhelming your hospital system. Yeah. It's decreasing productivity of your economy. Your economy can't be productive if half if large numbers of people are sick or disabled. So let's this cycle. is huge. That's a perfect way to end this. I want to cycle back. That was my original question. We've had a good discussion of what's happening. What's the impact on the economy? I feel like that alone could impact real estate prices and other pricing and damage the economy in a big way. So yes. what's your yes. thought about what's happening? Is it big enough scale to have an economic? Not yet. Not yet. It, it's not big enough yet, but it's forming. I think it's starting to form. America's a big place. You've got 330 million people. If you have, say, half a million excess deaths a year, it's not big in terms of the size of your economy. It's all about how many then are disabled and then what the growth pattern is of that. So if it grows, then it'll eventually have an economic impact. Most countries are already facing this. And in Europe, they're already announcing a significant numbers of new migration policies. So they're migrating people in. Our country's already announced they get back up to 300,000 new migrants coming in the next 12 months. They know there's a problem here, and our economy is only our economy is very dependent upon migration. So they've got to start migrating again to keep our population up and growing. So it's going to be hidden, Warner, economically by migration policies. Now, in the U.S., you've basically got a flood of new migrants coming across the border every day in the in the South. Now, I've been told by one of the people I talk to, in who knows, because he's worked on the border. You know this man. And I think he said to me that his estimate was that it's one to two million coming across every year. So if you're getting one or two million in every year, that can hide a lot of this economic impact over time. And I think our nation will migrate, I would say, at least 300,000 into our nation, if not double that by five years. I think our migration numbers will increase. This will change the whole mix of our society and uh, same in Europe. So I think that's happening at the same time. I think this is the problem. It'll be covered up and you won't be able to discern what's happening inside your own society, except with your own eyes. You'll be able to see right. the migrant influx happening. Jerry, thank you very much. Let's uh, close this out. I appreciate you staying on for this amount of time. I think you and I probably could go on all night. <laughs> we, we could get some beers out and keep going, I think. Get some beers, uh, yeah. But it's been great talking to you. You've taught me some things and disabused me from some other thoughts, which I was very interested to hear, particularly about the Chinese situation. That's fascinating to me. So I'm going to look at that in a bit of a new light after this uh, conversation. So would you tell uh, the audience again your website? Sure. If you wanted to read my weekly editorials going back, you just go to boomfinanceandeconomics.wordpress.com. 
but you have to register at the newspaper, the boomfinanceandeconomics.com. This has been very interesting. Boomfinanceandeconomics.com. Got it. I, I will put that on the post of this podcast as well. So thank you. I'll stop recording now and we can talk a little bit more.